Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for stopping by. My guest this week is Melissa Carney. She is the Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland and the author of a new book called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Yes, this economics professor is making the argument that being raised in a two-parent household clearly benefits children. As she tells me later in this interview that you're about to listen to, kids who grow up in stable two-parent homes are less likely to live in poverty, to have behavioral problems, to get in trouble at school. They're more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to go on to college. They're more likely to grow up, to achieve stable employment, higher earnings, and to be married themselves. Yes, that means the cycle repeats itself on the upside and the downside, which means that the marriage status of parents continues the cycle either for better or for worse, depending upon which group you're in. A lot of people out there don't want to acknowledge this elephant in the room, as you can see based on the reaction to Melissa's op-ed she wrote in this Sunday's New York Times. The title was, The Explosive Rise of Single-Parent Families is Not a Good Thing, and backlash on Twitter has been quick and uh, voluminous. A lot of people don't want to talk about this, but consider the data. 84% of the children of college-educated couples live with two married parents. For the children of high school-educated parents, the number is only 60%, down from 83% in 1980. And those numbers get worse as you descend the educational ladder. And when you cut the data by race, you see that economic inequality is directly correlated with rates of single parenting. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean that we all have to stay virgins until we marry somebody of the opposite sex and then attend church every Sunday or our kids are going to grow up to be ne'er-do-wells and live on the street? No, that's not what this means at all. And in fact, if you think about it, this doesn't even have to be a moral question. This is a practical question. Two parents simply have more resources and more time to invest in their children. And saying so doesn't make her or me for that matter, some crazy ultra-religious right-winger. I believe Melissa is courageous in advancing this argument. And in fact, when you look at her career, she spent the last 20 years doing research on social policy, poverty, and inequality. Her work's been published in academic journals, so clearly she knows what she's talking about. She's even testified before Congress about inequality. She recognizes that this is a big problem in our society, And when you listen to this argument, you'll see that this isn't just one side or the other. She says this is a big problem, but we need to understand the underlying issues that cause the inequality, but also that cause the difference in marriage rates among different groups in our society. And the underlying reason is economic. If we want to create stable families, we need to create a stable economy where men can earn a living and they have the incentive to be a part of a stable couple. That's really what it all comes down to. I'll tell you a little bit more about her. Melissa, as I said, was a Neil Moskowitz professor of economics at the University of Maryland. She's also the director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. She holds a BA in economics from Princeton and a PhD in economics from MIT. So she's super smart. And as I said, I believe she's incredibly brave to be pushing forward this vitally important conversation. This, my friends, is Melissa Carney. Are you ready for class? I will be on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) And you're teaching public policy, is that correct? I teach public economics and public policy 
and then I teach them intermediate micro. Oh, that's a tough course. Econ 201 was a brutal, brutal semester for me. Did you take it at Maryland? No, I took it at Rhodes College in Memphis. Oh, okay, okay. It's a foundational (laughs) course though, right? And it changes the way you think for life? Uh, Yes. Yes is the answer (laughs) to that question. Absolutely, Professor. I don't know. I just, macro was just easier for me to relate to than micro for some reason. Uh, Now I want a chance to teach you micro. (laughs) No, this is the only learning I'm doing. The self-education, my reading and our conversation today is how I will educate myself from here on out. Okay. No more microeconomics (laughs) for this guy. Blasphemy on your program. How did you get interested in economics? When did you get bit by that bug? Oh, interesting question. So I went to college interested in public policy questions. And it happened to be one of those cases where I randomly was assigned an economics professor as my academic advisor. And she said, you know, if you're interested in public policy and you have good math scores, you should try economics. And I didn't know what it was, but she convinced me to try taking an Econ 101 class. And I took it and I got hooked on economics. It was a, it actually made a lot of sense to me. It was a very nice sort of parsimonious, rigorous way to ask large questions about society that I was interested in. And so I still thought, oh, I'll be a public policy major, but I wound up majoring in economics. And then I still thought, well, I'll go get a master's in public policy, but then wound up getting a PhD in economics. And what's the focus of your economic study? I am trained as a labor economist and a public finance economist. And what that means is really I I sort of use those models and empirical methods to ask questions about how the government affects people's lives and decision making, how programs and policies expand or impede economic mobility. I have a particular focus and have for, you know, the 20 plus years I've been practicing as an economist on U.S. poverty, inequality, and decisions of family and household economics. Where does the economic become political? So the way I think about it is that when we do economics right, we don't bring our own biases or normative judgments to our analyses. We ask questions in an objective way. We look at the data in an objective way theoretically grounded way. And then where it becomes political in a useful way is when we as economists contribute ideas or evidence into a conversation and then allow ourselves to, let's say, make recommendations from them in the following sense. So I'll just give an example. You know, there's a standard result about when you tax somebody or give income payments to somebody, you reduce their incentives to work. It's sort of a standard economic model. Then we could do analyses using data to say, how big of an effect is that? Does it really matter? But then when you move on to saying, and therefore we should have lower or higher tax rates, you're implicitly putting your own value judgment on how you weigh off things. That's where it becomes political. Of course, you know where I'm going with all this, because when you see the title of of your new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, all of a sudden you want to ascribe some sort of motivation to the author. And so I want to establish up front because what we're going to talk about, uh, the importance of marriage has some political implications. So I want to ask you, first of all, are you now or have you ever been a member of the moral majority? 
Of the moral majority? <laughs> you remember Jerry Falwell, <laughs> the moral majority? No, this is not my world. I live in data. I don't even know what you're referring to. Okay, the, the second question. Are you a right-wing <laughs> Are you a right-wing zealot or the pastor of a mega church? No, I am not. <laughs> okay, do you have a political or religious motivation for writing this book? I do not. Okay, so why <laughs> in the world would you open yourself up to all the scrutiny that you will be opening yourself up to with this project? You know, I've asked myself that many times when I've written this. <laughs> and actually, the book just came in the mail. And I have three kids. My particularly earnest one read it. And she said, oh, mom, this is so exciting. And then she read the subtitle. Well, I'll read it. She says, how Americans stopped getting married and started falling behind. And she looked at me. She said, mom, I think some people might get mad at you. <laughs> I was like, okay, so why did I decide to write this book and expose myself to this? Because I have been studying inequality, poverty, you know, household economics for 20 plus years. And it has become extremely obvious to me from the data and from the evidence that in order to vastly improve child well-being and rates of upward mobility in this country, in order to make headway addressing class gaps, we have to address what's gone on with the family in the in this country, and in particular, the widening class gap in family structure. And the reason I felt like it was so important to write this book is because there are, I've been in so many conversations, policy conversations, you know, think tank rooms, and everyone wants to talk about schools, and government programs, and I'm all for that. But this is like at least as important, probably more important, and it's just not an instinctively, it's often not part of the conversation, and it needs to be. Okay, let's start by defining the problem. What advantages accrue to children who grow up in two-parent married homes? Okay, just when we look at outcomes, it is very clear across dozens, if not hundreds of studies, that kids who grew up in stable two-parent homes, they're less likely to live in poverty. They're less likely to have behavioral problems, get in trouble in school. They're more likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to go on to college. They are more likely to grow up to achieve stable employment, higher earnings, and be married themselves. Now, the next question is, well, how much of that just reflects that kids from higher income, more stable families like are more likely to live with two parents. And so that's why this becomes a difficult question. The answer there is that, yes, it is true that higher educated parents, older moms are more likely to be married. So their kids are more likely to have that advantage. But even when you control or condition or compare, you know, oranges to oranges and apples to apples and say, I'm just going to look at kids whether they live in a two-parent married parent home or a one-parent home, among moms who are the same age, the same education level, live in the same state, the same race, you see these large gaps in kids' outcomes. So we just have mounds of data that we really can't ignore and nobody really can deny, suggesting that kids from two-parent homes do better. Then the question, of course, is why? And a big part of it, and here's where I have an angle, <laughs> my angle is, those households have a lot more resources. So they're just resource advantaged. And so here's where like, this doesn't need to be moral. This doesn't need to be value laden. This doesn't need to be political. It's sort of 
silly to try and deny that two-parent households don't have more resources in general than a one-parent household. A lot of it is income, okay? A lot of it is two parents, you have more capacity to bring in income, and the majority of married parent households, both parents work, So income is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Those parents also have more collective time to give to their kids, and they have more emotional bandwidth. And they do more things that development psychologists refer to as like developmentally appropriate parenting. My read of why is because it's easier to do things like sit down and read to your kid if you're not the only one in charge of everything in the household, right? There's more emotional bandwidth, less stress. All of that is helpful and protective to kids. And we see it translates into better outcomes. And kids who are parented in certain ways do better than other kids. That is what the development psychology literature says, Mm -hmm. right? So that's outside my expertise, but those kinds of parenting styles that are sort of generally thought to be beneficial for kids, we see more of that parenting happening in two-parent homes. And it makes sense because parents who have a partner in crime in this raising of child or children have each other to rely on. They can find more patience. They can find more energy because... It's just harder to be exhausted when there's two of you and then when there's one of you. And having raised two children to to early teens, I know that even with two of you, you can both be exhausted a lot. And I often think, how much more exhausting would this be if I had to do it, you know, on a daily basis by myself? All right, let's talk about the marriage part of this thing. Why is marriage on a percentage basis at an all-time low in America? This is a very big question. It is, there's a lot of different answers. My read of sort of all of the evidence on this and where I come down is it reflects both economic and social changes over the past 40 years. So one way to think about this is to focus, as I do in the book, on the sort of post-social cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. So let's, let's just, you know, Level set, what happened in the 60s and 70s, major changes in gender roles, people's views about traditional household setups, marriage, et cetera. And what you see over the 60s and 70s is a reduction in marriage rates across the education distribution. So basically what I mean is people with the lowest, middle and highest levels of education all saw their likelihood of marrying decline a bit in the 60s and 70s. Then where things really get interesting and diverge, and this is the focus of my work in the book, is in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, what we see happening is that the decline in marriage basically stops among college-educated people. So they continue to get married essentially at the same rates now as they did 20, 40 years ago. But among people outside the college-educated class, marriage has continued to fall, such that now, you know, this surprises a lot of people, college-educated adults are the most likely to be married. College-educated mothers are much more likely to be married than other mothers. And the reason why, you know, I've come to the view that a lot of this reflects economics, it's really, you sort of created a new social paradigm where it became more acceptable really to not be married or, or to have children outside marriage. And then you loaded on a whole bunch of sort of structural, secular, large-scale economic shocks and changes that eroded the economic position of men outside the college-educated class in America. And I'm talking about things like the reduction in manufacturing employment, the 
reduction in industrial jobs, the loss of, let's call them middle-class family-sustaining jobs. And so in the affected communities, there's a lot of research showing in a causal way in communities where these economic pressures were greater, where more men lost their jobs, saw their earnings decline, we see rates of marriage fall and we see rates of single mother households increase. So there's a clear economic pathway here, but there was always poverty. There were always, you know, families in economic distress and yet people still got married. So I really think the way to think about this is these economic pressures sort of hit certain groups harder than others, eroded the economic value of marriage for these uh, affected communities, for these adults. And you had a new social paradigm where it was more normalized and acceptable to not be married, to have kids outside marriage. And the confluence of those trends really sort of reduced marriage and led to an increase in single parent homes outside the college-educated class. Talk about the college gap, because that's a big factor in two-parent households, or the composition of a household, right? Yeah, it's sort of amazing. So back in 1980, there were small educational differences, but not much. So kids of moms with college degrees, which was a very small group back in 1980, right? It was 90%. And then among moms with a high school degree, it was 83% of those kids lived in a married parent home, and then 80% among for the children whose moms didn't have a high school degree. And over the 80s, right, that number at the bottom of the education distribution increased and people got worried about the really disadvantaged groups, these vulnerable groups. What happened over the intervening 40 years, really, again, the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, I don't think anyone would have necessarily predicted this, but the group sort of in the middle, moms with a high school degree, some college, but not a four-year college degree, and now that's the majority of moms, right? Right in the middle there with a high school degree, some college. Their rates of raising their kids in married parent homes have converged to that of the most disadvantaged, least educated moms. And that's sort of surprising. If we sort of took marriage rates by education group in the 80s and projected out the increase in women's educational attainment, how much more educated mothers would be today, we would have predicted a total decline in single-parent households. But instead, the rate at which kids are being raised in two-parent households and married-parent households has really only been stable among college-educated moms, even though that group has been growing. It's become sort of less special. That's the group that's still overwhelmingly, like 84% of kids whose moms have a four-year college degree now live in a married-parent home as compared to 60% of kids outside that class. So that's a 24 percentage point gap. Like that's huge. Yeah. And is that because of the economic impact to the men in that similar category? So certainly rates line up such that if you look at what has happened to the economic earnings and employment of men in these different education groups and education by race and ethnic groups, rates of marriage in two-parent households their trends sort of correlate with those trends. And then I think this other research that shows very clearly that there's causal channels where we see, you know, groups and communities where the economic status, meaning their earnings, their employment of men decreased, that, that's exactly where we see large increases in single-parent households. Does the same trends hold true for same-sex marriages? 
same-sex marriage has become obviously more common. It's become legal, right, over this time period. But still, when I'm looking at aggregate census data, it's a very small share of kids live with same-sex parents. Mm -hmm. So in all my analyses, I don't separate out by whether the married couple or the count of parents, whether they're of the same or different sexes. Okay. The word privilege in our current world is a loaded word. It often implies advantages were ill-gotten. But the fact that my parents were married and stayed married for 55 years was not some plot cooked up by Elon Musk or the KKK, right? I just was happened to be born into this family. Like, yeah. Is single parenthood a choice? Okay, so this is... Very deep question you just asked. There's a lot to unpack. So let's start with privilege. So when I say the two-parent privilege, in some sense, I'm owning it, right? Like, I agree, it's become a loaded term, but we think about all the ways. I was focused more on, I think, just getting lucky, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you said you were lucky. You had two parents. I was very lucky. I had two parents, right? It wasn't always easy for them. There were struggles, but they stuck it out. And I consider myself and my sisters very lucky for that experience. My kids are very lucky and very privileged to have two parents doting on them and pouring resources into them. And so in some sense, I'm owning it and acknowledging it. And if we want to ask why are some groups doing so much better in society than others, this is part of the answer. It's like undeniable. This is part of the answer. If you grow up with two parents in your house, you have more economic resources, more family stability, and ultimately more opportunities and better outcomes in life. And so, you know, I think we should, I'm hoping it's helpful to think about it this way, as opposed to in the past, the issue really has been, I think, focused on single parenthood as a disadvantaged position, which I agree it is. But the problem is then when we talk about the disadvantages associated with single parent households, people get very nervous for good reason because we don't want to sound like or we don't want to blame the victim. And so this gets to your question of single parenthood. Is it a choice? Okay. So if you think back to your intermediate micro class. <laughs> remember, thank you, Joyce Jacobson. I barely passed, but thank yeah, you. We people making what economists call constrained optimization choices. What mm -hmm. does that mean? I make the choices given what I'm faced with, given the hand I'm dealt, given my budget constraint, right? So when I think about what do I see in the data, who's becoming a single mother, it is not the most economically successful women or the women with the most opportunities. It's really we're seeing single motherhood, one-parent households, predominantly in more economically vulnerable communities. And so that's where I think these constraints come in. And I think what we really need to be doing is asking, given how hard it is to raise a kid by your own, why does it seem in many groups, in many communities, that that is a better option than trying to do this with, with your child's parent, with your child's other parent? And once you start getting under the hood of that, there are a lot of barriers to stable marriages. There's a lot of barriers to setting up a safe, stable two-parent home. But I don't want to completely take 
you know, choice and social norms out of this. I think that's really important. Again, in communities where this has become prevalent, it's very much normalized. And so this gets to the question of, given how common it is, given that now 40% of kids are born outside of marriage, have we gone so far where some people are, are ambivalent about it, essentially? Like not recognizing this is going to be hard. It actually might be worth us trying to work through this relationship. It might be worth us like trying to stick it out, even though communication is a challenge. And so that's honestly, that's where I'm trying to lead a conversation, which is to say, let's look at why so many families are not able to achieve this advantaged or privileged position of a two parent household, a stable marriage and address whatever economic barriers or social ambivalence there is. The thing here is that this is so important because these effects compound generation over generation, which means inequality will get worse. We talk about inequality like it's a problem now. Well, how about three generations in the future if the current trends continue? And people who refuse to acknowledge this, I don't want to go super political here, but you have to address the elephant in the room that the social groups that are affected the most by this are black Americans. And they have a rate of two-parent households of what 38 percent i think you said in the book exactly and And, so but you get black lives matter literally saying they want to dismantle the western prescribed nuclear family which is just going to make things even worse if they get that that's a cultural norm that has to be turned around right yeah so race is sort of everywhere in this issue which makes it all the more challenging to talk about and so again this is where you know, it's not helpful to basically say, oh, well, single mother households are really common in black communities. They're making bad choices. They need to make better choices. Right. So to your point, what we really need to be doing is saying, why are single parent households so common in black communities? And, you know, one thing that's really important to realize is that the gaps in family structure between whites and blacks really didn't emerge until till the 60s and 70s. And so, you know, there's a lot that's gone on and the sort of disproportionate incarceration of black men in the U.S. certainly hasn't helped this. That takes a lot of men out of their communities. And then when they get, even when, you know, people are released from prison, it's really hard to reintegrate into the community to achieve stable employment. There are a lot of real barriers residential segregation has made it worse, right? Has undermined employment opportunities. So all of that is part of it. But sort of denying the fact that one of the results of disparate conditions, underlying discrimination in our society is a breakdown of the family that is bad for children and perpetuates intergenerational differences in equality. We have to acknowledge that. And shine a light on the family. You know, one thing I do want to say on the topic of race is even when you look among black families, rates of married parent households are twice as high among the children of college educated black moms as non-college educated. Right. So there's actually a larger now, you know, in 2020, now there's a larger class gap in family structure than race gap. So if I just look at college educated moms or the kids of college-educated moms, 88% of white kids are in married parent families, 76% of Hispanic kids, 
60% of black kids. And then when we look at non-college educated moms, there's huge drops off across all of those. The one exception to all of this is Asian families. There is not a large education gradient in the family structure among Asian families in the U.S. They are sort of across the board, across the education income distribution. Asian kids in the U.S. have really high rates, the highest rates of two-parent households. And is that cultural or is there another reason for that? It cannot be explained by different economic situations. So it seems like it has to be social norms and cultural explanations, because when I look at things by what happened to the employment and economic situation of non-college educated men, it's not like non-college educated Asian men have done much better than the others. So the economic story explanation doesn't bear out for that group. How is access to birth control and reproductive rights affect the structure of the family? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay. To be clear, I don't focus on that or highlight it in my book for a particular reason, which is that births are way down in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Births among teenagers are down. I was going to ask you that next. Yeah, no, they're down like <laughs> over 70% from the mid-90s. So what's interesting is that all of this has happened. The rise in single mother households has happened despite the fact that births are way down. Births to you know young or younger women, the groups for whom we typically saw higher rates of single parenthood are way down. All of this has happened despite that. And so what is not driving this is rampant unintended pregnancies or high levels of teen childbearing. This has all happened despite reductions in birth rates among you know, disadvantaged groups in the U.S. Which is totally counterintuitive, right? I yeah. mean, how might MTV have played a role in the reduction of teen pregnancy? <laughs> you did your homework. So. I read your book. I told you. <laughs> I, love, I... I love it. I love it. Okay. So the MTV study. All right. So it turns out that the introduction of the 16 and pregnant and teen mom franchise really did affect behaviors among teenagers in this country such that it led to an unanticipated decrease in teen birth rates. So teen birth rates were falling in the U.S., like 2.5% a year, 2.5% a year, 2.5% a year. All of a sudden, it dropped 7.5%. My colleague, Phil Levine, and I had studied a whole bunch of causes and effects of teen childbearing, and we started getting calls from journalists, and we were like, we have no idea why it fell that much, but it's not what anyone else tells you. Like, we just know that unemployment rates don't have that large of effect. Abstinence education doesn't have that large of an effect. Expanded access to contraception matters, but it didn't change that dramatically in this year. And then, who at the time ran the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy, I called her. I said, what do you think's going on? She goes, we think it's the MTV effect. Like, what? <laughs> what? That cannot be. Uh-oh. And of course, neither one of, of us had watched the show. But so what we did was we bought ratings data on the show from Nielsen TV ratings. We got Twitter data. We got Google data. And we started investigating, like, could this plausibly have had a case? You know, we do fancy econometrics that I won't bore you with, but it looks like there was a causal effect. And does that make sense? Well, here's the sort of verification of it actually affected the hearts and minds of teenagers, boys and girls alike. You know, surveys of them said, yeah, this show sort of makes it feel really real. And then when you look at Google spike, Google data and Twitter data after shows air, there's spikes in the rates at which people are searching for how to get birth control. All of that 
By the way, I actually think there's a broader point from that study and the literature. There's a lot of studies in economics showing that exposure to particular content on TV or in media has causal impacts on people's behaviors. All of that does suggest that social norms matter and sort of attitudes about these kinds of social questions are malleable. Can you imagine what Jersey Shore did to the average IQ across America? (laughs) Okay, Paul. I, I know you're from New Jersey. Jersey Shore girl, <laughs> and those people were from Rhode Island. Can I just say? <laughs> okay, I New Jersey Shore is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just lose credibility? Not at all. Not at all. The, you're the, jur- the the Shore girl who made it to Princeton and MIT. You, d- you did okay. You did okay. <laughs> So what do you do here? Like th- this is obviously a huge problem. It seems intractable, but. Certainly, it's something worthy of our attention and well thought through public policy. But where do you start? So this is, you know, like a lot of books that try to convince you that there's a problem. The solutions often feel like, wait, that's it. That's all you got in chapter eight for me. So I'm admitting that, you know, but here's the thing. We've been trying for 50 years to improve public education We've been talking for two decades now about the need to expand college completion rates and access to high quality, you know, college for everybody. What I'm trying to do is put this on the policy agenda and then have a lot of smart people put their heads together and say, what do we do now that once we're willing to admit strengthening families needs to be a policy priority? And that is not a moral proposition. Okay, so you could just look at society, look at the economics on this and say strengthening families has to be a policy priority for our country in order to break the cycle of intergenerational inequality, in order to expand economic opportunity, in order to improve child and family well-being. And what do we do? There are a lot of innovative, committed groups around the country working with unmarried parents, working with families who you know, struggle with violence, with child the welfare system. These are tragically underfunded um, because this isn't a funding priority. So I think, you know, the first thing we do is we invest in programs that show signs of promise and we dedicate ourselves to studying those programs. All of that takes funding and personnel and effort and talented people. And we build up an evidence base about how to improve families, strengthen families, meet families where they are to help them be better parents. There's low-hanging fruit, like our tax and transfer programs should obviously not penalize marriage, which many of them do, especially the way they do this is it's not an explicit penalty, but really if you have two people who are married and working, they sort of get taxed at a higher rate or they lose their benefits more quickly. So that's some low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. is to make sure that our public programs and policies don't discourage or penalize marriage. The sort of big part is leaning into why has the economic proposition of marriage decreased for so many people? Here's where we really need to recognize that the economic challenges facing certain segments of the population, the non-college educated population in particular, those challenges have bled over into the family and social sphere. And so that heightens the urgency of addressing those challenges making sure more people have access to family-sustaining wages. We work hard on employment. We have to solve all of that. I think there's not one silver bullet, but everything needs to happen. 
Okay, so to summarize, to the progressives, you have to accept that family matters and that ceteris paribus, two parents is better. And to conservatives, yes, the family matters, but if you believe in family, you have to invest in the economic prospects and middle or lower, lower class Americans. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Let's talk the importance of college degree. You've spent almost your entire adult life on college campuses. <laughs> to what degree, let's remind ourselves, the college diploma is absolutely critical in achieving economic autonomy uh, based on this data. You've spent your almost entire adult life on college campuses. Do you believe the way the institutions are structured is aligned with maximizing access to education for all Americans? Okay, this is a tangent, but I'll go there. I think there's a lot we need to do to improve the higher education sector, like a lot. The real problem now is not that people don't have access to institutions of higher ed, you know, now like 70% of high school graduates enroll. The problem is getting people through and getting people a degree that yields a high value in the workforce, mm. right? So I am a huge proponent of higher education. The data is unequivocal that on average, on average, a college degree still yields huge increases in the labor market because it seems to increase skills, right? So let me... Let me just, as an aside, say we should try and eliminate that bottleneck where it's not necessary. So all of these movements to like don't require a four-year degree if the job doesn't actually require a four-year degree and thereby increase more job opportunities for more Americans, 100% we need to be doing those things, okay? But the truth of the matter is people who go through college and earn a degree in, you know, a good major, they get a huge labor market boost from that. So where I think institutions of higher education need to improve is really making sure that they are delivering classes, programs that are valuable, right? They need to rein in spending to keep tuition and costs down, but people need to make smarter choices too. So a lot of the things we hear and the sad stories we hear about people taking out hundreds and thousands of dollars of loans to, to get a degree at an institution that doesn't pay off, right? We can't just keep throwing money at the problem, sort of allowing people to really be taken advantage of in that way. So there, there's a lot there. When you say that, is there anything that can be done? Is online education as good as a, an in-person class experience? Like, How do you make it more accessible kind of in the short run? Yeah. Let me just be clear to the readers. None of this is in the book, but I have yeah. <laughs> I, this is, I'm asking you to, to opine on things yeah. that this yeah. aren't in this no, book. No, no, no. But, but this is, you know, stuff I've looked at in other It is related. It is related. It, it's 100% related because they say we need to improve educational opportunities and economic opportunities. And then the question is how? So then exactly mm -hmm. right. This is the path we need to go down. You know, it turns out that when you look at the evidence on online education, the groups for whom it seems to work particularly well are actually pretty highly skilled. So, mm. for example you know, like master's programs in like a STEM field. That seems to be like a productive way to use online education. But for, especially when we're talking about people who are, let's say, on the margin of going to college or not, it doesn't really look like online education is going to work very well. So we know that from the evidence and studies of online programs. And I think any of us who 
like lived through the pandemic with an association with an education institution, either trying to watch your kids learn or teach students on Zoom, just realize how limiting that is. So, so there's a role for technology to be used in the classroom setting, but we can't outsource education and higher education to a computer. There's your next book, and I will welcome you on the show next <laughs> when that comes out. My guest is Melissa Carney. She is the author of The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Melissa, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So they can go to the University of Chicago Press, or they can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever they get their books and buy their copy. Right, So we got right here. There you go. That's yeah. You've got the new one. I've got the, the draft. Oh, yeah, you have the draft. So... um. So they can get the copy there. And then uh, I guess I guess now that you're asking me this question, I've got to update my web page. But I, I do have a, you know, a website through the University of Maryland Economics Department, like my academic writings and policy writings. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time Terrific. and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.